I've seen the wall. I ain't worried about the wall. I'm worried about the audience I'm gonna play till tomorrow night. I can't say what I want to say, but if you accept it, I'll say it. Forget about all that other bullshit. Louis Armstrong. In 1965, four years after the Berlin Wall was built, during the Vietnam War and in the midst of the Cold War, the African-American jazz legend Louis Armstrong toured through the GDR, playing 17 concerts in only nine days. We're Paola Malavasi and Jason Moran, curators of the exhibition I've Seen the Wall, Louis Armstrong on tour in the GDR in 1965. And in this first episode of our four-part podcast accompanying the exhibition at Das Minsk, Kunsthaus in Potsdam, near Berlin. We'll be talking about music and art, about politics and all of its entanglements. To start off, what is Das Minsk? So Das Minsk houses artworks from the period after 1945 with a focus on art from the former GDR, which are all part of the Hasselblatt collection. We opened in 2022, September last year, in the former Therese restaurant Minsk in Potsdam, which was built in the 1970s in the former modernist style of the GDR, and which was a place of encounter, a very prominent one. And now it is again, but more in the shape of an exhibition space focusing on GDR art and history in dialogue with contemporary art. I am the founding director of Das Minsk, and I proposed this exhibition project from the very beginning, three years ago, with the aim to do a show on Louis Armstrong's tour through the GDR, which was, frankly, rather spectacular, and still is, retrospectively. It definitely is, and that's why we're here. Exactly. You're here as a co-curator, Jason, of the exhibition, but you're also a musician. And you got me in touch with the team of the Louis Armstrong House Museum and the newly opened Louis Armstrong Center in Corona, Queens, New York, for which you curated the first show, Here to Stay. We worked together years ago in Berlin, producing a performance to Apex by Arthur Jaffa, and have since then been in dialogue about music and art from as many perspectives as possible. I am looking at things from the standpoint of an art historian and maybe a jazz audience, you from the standpoint of an artist and a musician on stage, backstage. Um, I dare to say we both love jazz music in general. <laughs> I mean, you make it. I listen to it. And we wanted to open this topic to a contemporary discourse. So to not only look at this tour and its events from a historical point of view, but from today and in order to see how ambivalent the invitation was, where we're at now and what all this can mean for the production and reception of art and music today. For that, we imagine the stage curtain at the Friedrichstadtpalast because we don't know the color <laughs> because all images are black and white and the films black and white. We just imagined it and installed it at the entrance to our exhibition as an invitation to join us to go backstage and have a closer look and listen closer to the events. Fighting back to hear me back where you belong. 
Armstrong's tour was scheduled with 17 concerts in just nine days, so mostly playing two shows per day, which is crazy. East Berlin, Leipzig, Magdeburg, Erfurt, and Schwerin. Starting on March 20th, 1965 in the old Berliner Friedrichstadtpalast and finishing on 8th of April in Schwerin. In between, he gave other concerts in the East Block and went once to West Berlin too. People in the GDR queued for hours and 18,000 tickets were sold in just one day. The visit and tour of Louis Armstrong was an absolutely outstanding event. And it was maybe equally ambivalent as it is outstanding. And we're listening now, I think, to the press conference and this inaccurate translation. Ein herzliches Willkommen für den großen Künstler, dem unsere ganze Verehrung und Bewunderung gehört. Ein herzliches Willkommen, aber auch dem Menschen Louis Armstrong, dem unsere ganze Achtung gehört. Hier. I've seen the wall. I saw it uh, when I played the uh, concert, you know, in Abedov. I saw the wall. I ain't worried about the wall. I'm worried about the audience I'm going to play to tomorrow night. I don't know about the wall. I can't say what I want to say, but uh, if you accept it, I'll say it. Forget about all that other bullshit. <laughs> Er, sein Ausdruck war jetzt ein bisschen äh, stark, indem er gesagt hat, äh, wir wollen über die, ganz, über die anderen Sachen vergessen, nicht denken wir nur an die Musik. Aber in, interessant ist es immerhin, dass die, die einzige politische Frage dieser Art nicht von uns, sondern von einer westlichen Gesellschaft gestellt wurde. Wir registrieren das mit Freude. There is all this tension in the press conference in the airport in East Berlin, and a lot of translations being made from English to German, from German to English, and from English to a slightly manipulated <laughs> German <laughs> <Right>. from the GDR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also um, like translated in body language, too. You mm -hmm. know, the ease of Armstrong, who is now in his mid-60s, he's a, he's a senior And he has moved a lot through life. And so he's also coming into another new situation uh, and asked to give some language to the music that he makes or the situation that he is not in control of, you know. And I was thinking about the way you said this ambivalent in invitation. And I watch it now today that uh, cultural institutions are often asked to propose a question to the artist to give an answer before society can. And it's unfair to the artist to be put in these situations to solve the ills. But what the work does is it begins to at least ask the question. 
And I think the artists in the show have definitely asked that question. And early on in our research, you wrote me, you said, the press conference made me suffer. Oh, yes. The concert I enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess that says something about the power of music and the freedom reclaimed on the stage, the words versus the music. Yes, and you wrote back very rapidly, and I'm just uh, trying to do a paraphrase. You said, you you, you quote uh, Telonius Monk, which, uh, right. which is, uh, can I say an idol for you? Yes, <laughs> a role model. A reason, yes. <laughs> A reason for everything. <laughs> and the quote was? The quote uh, was, he was asked a question uh, by his arranger, Hall Overton, in 1959, about something about his music and technique and his music. And Monk said, well, rather than say it, can't I just play it? <laughs> and he was really tired of the, the, of the interview, and he just wanted to go play. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my goodness, I had never heard anyone say it that way, you know, because music unlocks another language that is hard to pin down, you know, like when we look at the side of the hieroglyphics on, you know, in Egypt, you know, like we're trying to pin down what what does the cat mean, actually, you know. So what does the sound mean? What do monks' melodies mean? What does it mean to hear Louis Armstrong slur a note for so long, you know? What does it mean when his, with his body language on stage that he points his trumpet up into the air, that he he looks over his audience? There's something in all that for us to kind of try to ask. That excited me. So these places he played, tell me about these places. The halls with a capacity of no less than 2,000 to 3,000 seats wow. were quickly sold out. Around 45,000 people experienced Louis Armstrong in the GDR. This raises a lot of questions. What does it mean to listen to jazz in post-war East Germany? And a document of the Stasi, the secret police in East Germany, calls to surveil all youth attending the Louis Armstrong concert in order to prevent any kind of rioting. Mm. There was no rioting whatsoever. This manifests, however, what kind of threat the GDR government saw in the concert at the same time. And when we talk about words versus music, I mean, music is political and Mm. music can be a very powerful statement. You know, when we talk about stage and a concert taking place, I mean, the musicians go back home, but also the audience Mm -hmm. (laughs) goes back home. (laughs) So you just experienced an amazing concert. It was music from the West. Mm -hmm. And the, the system in the GDR was observing every, every book, every record, every film that you watched and everything you listened to and so on could be very risky. So I imagined all of these people returning back home and thought it is almost sarcastic to offer one hour and 50 minutes of freedom Mm. to thousands of people Mm. that actually in real life and their realities and they turn back to reality after the concert didn't have this freedom. I think it was a very ambivalent invitation. Hmm. And nevertheless, you always said it's still a moment of freedom on stage. And no matter where Armstrong went to, there was this moment on stage. Right. 
it allows you a yeah, moment of what do you call that where you're able to have amnesia <laughs> right <laughs> just you know like momentary mm. amnesia or oh, i've forgotten my troubles mm-hmm. that's for armstrong too you know in 1965 in america the, it's on fire neighborhoods are burning black people have long been tired of yelling america is trying to figure out how can they find a new way to oppress black folk but meanwhile say that we're going to give them some freedom you know whether it's in the vote or as now you can sit in the lunch counter Right, so the lie continued. How could were they going to fabricate a new lie for the 1970s? Well, it started in the 1960s, and Armstrong has already grown up and seen all this stuff, and he's he's tired of it. He often speaks out in the press about things he's seen happening. You know, the way the children in in Arkansas were not allowed to go to this high school without armed guards in Little Rock, Arkansas. He talks about this, you know, with disdain. Uh, He talks about his relationship to the movement, you know, uh, that if he would go to the movement, if he would go to to the march, that they would hit him in his mouth so that he wouldn't be able to play anymore. His camp has been infiltrated by the FBI. They planted moles in his camp as he traveled through other countries in Africa. So he knows that there's something like really troubling around the situation once he steps off of the stage. But on the stage, he's able to reveal something, I think, that it's not just for the audience, it's for him, too. And those in it, that are in his band, they are very well aware of the situation that they will return to once they get off the plane in New York. And I think that's what we also hear. You know, like you wisely f- noted that, oh, he wasn't really performing that song Black and Blue, but he put it near the top of the concert <laughs> once he got here. For the whole tour. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like he was ready with a new set list uh, for the moment. So that's where we were. And there's always this thing like, oh, yeah, democracy will save you. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, no, uh, it won't. It won't. And I don't know what wisdom I'll have as I would approach 65. But hearing both Martin Luther King and Louis Armstrong enter this geography around that time starts to give us a, a sense of where they thought about it, not only for themselves, but for communities worldwide. And that's important to note. In 1958, Louis Armstrong was at the Newport Jazz Festival in Rhode Island. And he played, at 2.30 in the morning, he played the Star Spangled Banner, the American National Anthem. sunk the song deep into the night, free of ceremony. 
You know, usually we play this song at the beginning of a day at school, you know, or you play this song at the beginning of like a, a football match or a baseball game, right? Somebody sings the national anthem, right, as this ceremony. But he sunk it into the night after everybody's been drinking all day and they're drunk with music too. And he plays this song and our great novelist and thinker James Baldwin was sitting in the audience and he leans over to someone and says, this is the first time I've heard that song and liked it. Mm. And I think he's not only responding to the way Armstrong is performing it, but it's also the context that Armstrong is performing it in. And that is also key to trying to understand this tour, too. It's in 1965. This is like a very kind of uh, watershed moment for modern culture, period in trying to understand where are we going to uh, move forward towards. And he is being used as a person who's going to bring possible answer. Mm-hmm. So bring, there's a, bring oh, freedom, maybe. Yeah, well... It is a moment of freedom. It right? is a moment of freedom. And I, even, even if the freedom sounds old-fashioned, <laughs> <laughs> you know, meaning like he's not playing necessarily new music, you know, I mean, he has a hit song, you know, around that time with Hello, Dolly. But we couldn't say that that was a new style of song. I mean, literally, John Coltrane is playing a Love Supreme, you know. Motown music from Detroit has exploded and the beat has totally changed. And so he's still representing a kind of an older idea. But there's something about what Lewis puts in his music that never quite dates itself. And so... It inherently has that particle in it that always can unlock me, at least as a listener, you know. During Armstrong's tour, or at least at Friedrichstadt Palace, it's a long concert, two hours almost. And a lot of soli are being played. Every musician has a, a solo in this, in this concert. And the classic Without a Song is performed without its lyrics. Um, they read. Without a song, the day would never end. Without a song, the road would never bend. When things go wrong, a man ain't got a friend. Without a song. is playing this this song without a song <laughs> mm-hmm. uses a mute and with uh, this effect that the mute produces you have the feeling that you're listening to a voice right. that comes actually really near to the voice of Armstrong even you have a you have a feeling you're listening to a human voice yeah that's true the, trum- the trombone can do that mm-hmm. it has that ability to sound you know, like a, a a tenor voice and with the the plunger mute, it changes color. It's almost like the voice puts on a mask, 
you know, the trombone puts on a mask in a way, and it unlocks another color. For brass players, it's very normal to have a collection of mutes, you know. I mean, it's such a funny phrase. In the music world, it's very normal. But when you bring it outside of the music world, a collection of mutes. <laughs> it's a very different kind of phrase. Um, and I think that's also what we're trying to do, too, is pull back some of maybe the the phraseology that we use so frequently in music to discuss Armstrong and his band, but to really like set him inside a space that allows well, for more of the ideas to ooze into one another. Um, because they need that kind of dissection as well, you know. The title of the exhibition, I've Seen the Wall, which we've heard Armstrong say in the press conference, implies that he's well aware of the political conundrum he finds himself in when being asked about the wall by a West German journalist whilst touring through East Germany. But he moves on rapidly. He says... He's focused on the audience. I'm worried about my audience, he says. I'm worried about the music I'm going to play mm -hmm. tomorrow <laughs> to my audience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's about the music. And he also says that he plays for everyone. However, it's documented that Louis Armstrong and his all-stars face blatant racism while touring. I mean, not only in East Germany and West Germany, and I mean, out in the world again and again. Against the backdrop of the civil rights movement in the United States and the Iron Curtain in Europe, what does it mean to visit oppressive systems and dictatorships in the name of freedom? What does it mean to repeatedly experience recognition and racism at the same time on the road and to return home to be confronted with love and racism all over again? You know, you brought in uh, Adrian Piper's My Calling Card, yeah. which Adrian Piper is such a, a dear artist and mentor and really changed my entire life. <laughs> mm -hmm. I can say that effectively and truthfully. But tell us about The Calling Card. Oh, well, I picked up one of those in an exhibition in Berlin mm -hmm. years ago. And it reads, do not... Touch, tap, pat, stroke, prod, pinch, poke, grope, or grab me. Mm. We also thought a lot about the experience on the road as a musician. And also for Jewel Brown, the lone female in Armstrong's band, who was very young by that point. Maybe she was 24, 25 mm -hmm. years old in this band. And she talked in our interview about what it felt like to be in the company, you know, of not only a band of men, but also the way men would react to her over here. She talked about the way that it, not that it was worrisome to her, there was something that she had to be mindful of. And I felt like Jewel Brown needed this calling card <laughs> to hand out to a lot of people. Do not touch, you know, my hair is not for poking, you know, uh, my body is not for groping. And for also for Louis Armstrong's wife, Lucille Armstrong, that they, they really were receiving a different kind of, you could say, glare from uh, as they traveled. I mean, James Baldwin talks about this in Stranger in a Village, you know, this, this sense And when we talk about the traveling African-American band of that era and for the decades before that, they're really 
you know, coming to big towns and small towns, small villages across uh, Europe. And, and still to this day as a traveling musician, there are moments where people could use a Piper calling card <laughs> mm. more frequently than maybe is acknowledged. I think for an artist, and especially a musician, we're often trying to find how do we make impact. Some of us might think that just playing the song is enough or that presence is enough. Ah, you know. Adrian Piper asked this question to her own self at some point during the 60s and 70s. Well, considering what's happening in the world, maybe I should switch something, you know. And for me, uh, one of the things I learned from her was the notion of intention around it. To not just leave it up in the air, but to actually point it. And her work impacted me that way because she was able to point directly into my chest through her works. And I feel like Armstrong is able to do that to a degree. He was often noted and maybe maligned by younger student activists for not being vocal enough, right? But over time, all of those activists, well, many of those activists, like Amir Baraka, Archie Shep, they all came back around to say, well, actually, Lewis was most profound in his activism because uh, as Lester Bowie, the great trumpeter, said, you know, the activist isn't the one always out there yelling on the street. <laughs> he, said that, he said there's another way that people get in the room to spark change. And I felt that Armstrong does this, that he finds his way inside rooms that the person on the street doesn't. And they do need each other as a community of activists to spark a kind of change, possible change. For me, I felt like one of the great moments he has near the very end of his life is he makes this song in the 60s, What a Wonderful World. And people know it to this day. People can probably hear it in their head right now, <laughs> right? But the last record he makes, he does a remix of that song. He addresses the students, the student protesters, and says, you know, the war, right? He says, oh, okay, well, I know y'all are thinking like, Pops, you know, this world is not really that wonderful, right? You know, and he's like, I hear you. I hear you. And he says, but man, if we just had love, you know, like he tries to turn it there. And I think not every activist needs to try to choose love. right? <laughs> Malcolm X did not choose love. He was like, no, nah, man, no. we're going to fight. We're gonna, it needs blood, right? But we do need people to share different versions of MLK was nonviolence, right? You know, what was Fannie Lou Hamer's was what? Right? what? What are people's versions of where they see their activism lies? And as a community, it needs all that nuance in between because no one has the necessarily the gold ticket. I remember you playing What a Wonderful World um, during the pandemic, live, online, and you never played the world. I never played What a Wonderful you kept, World. You kept going over this. When I think to myself. Oh, yeah, <laughs> over this sentence again because and again. Because he has to say that <laughs> phrase when he yes. sings it. And I think to myself, and That's, he has to pause. Yeah. And, you know, I think all of us, all <laughs> of us know we're going through some fucked up shit we might not be talking about. <laughs> but And then when you think to yourself, like, am I making this up? Or is it possible for me to seek the silver lining? And where does my energy need to go for me to get through, you know? And it's always touching to think of Armstrong that way. We have to give him that room as an artist, that he's not simply just performing, that he has nuance in his emotion, too. And so by the 60s, like I say, he's 60-something. Mm -hmm. The ideas that he still has in his performances 
some of those things have kind of gone out of out of style as performance modes, you know. Wearing a tuxedo, it's not necessarily in style, you know. But the other group that was also wearing a tuxedo during that time was John Coltrane. So there's something that people are locking onto that I feel like represent classic material. And Armstrong is devoted to the classic. And love is a classic. Hate is easy to peddle. You know, division is easy to peddle. Somehow he keeps trying to work his way towards that. And at the end, his last record, he centers on it by singing these gospel hymns and Negro spirituals and What a Wonderful World as like a funky remix. Some of you young folks been saying to me, hey, Pops, what you mean, what a wonderful world? How about all them wars all over the place? You call them wonderful? And how about hunger and pollution? They ain't so wonderful either. How about listening to pop And one of the artists we brought in was a, a great saxophonist and artist, Peter Bratzman. And he spoke on the topic of freedom. Um, he says, quote, We are all old enough to know that the term freedom can be twisted in any direction. Most people understand freedom to mean doing what they want, not letting anyone or anything tell them what to do. But in music, that has always been a misconception. Freedom is something very individual. It existed for Louis Armstrong, just as it did for Don Cherry, only as an inner attitude, not as a program. And Bratzman, a German musician, multidisciplinary artist, who was very much influenced by Armstrong in his youth, um, he loved Louis Armstrong, he loved Sidney Bechet, both from New Orleans, and he came from Fluxus, assisted Nam June Pike, and was one of the most notorious <laughs> and, uh, and, let's say, bold <laughs> saxophonists until his very recent death, rest his beautiful soul. And I think he very well reflects the multidisciplinary approach of this show. Our visitors might think, ah, okay, Jason Moran brought the African-American artists in, and Paola Malavasi brought the German positions in. <laughs> it was not like that. <laughs> no. So Jason Moran brought... Uh, Peter Bratzmann and <laughs> Pina Bausch. <laughs> yes. I proposed Adrian Piper's card. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, you proposed Glenn Ligon. Yeah, Glenn Ligon. Yeah. <laughs> I proposed your friends. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I know. But also the exchange that Armstrong is also trying to accomplish, whether or not he ever says it. But he knows that it, the exchange is not with him and this wall. The exchange is with the people. And when an audience lets down their wall, then they can receive the sound. Armstrong grows up in New Orleans, in a very segregated New Orleans, a New Orleans he left happily and rarely returned to to perform because of their segregation laws. And he had an integrated band. Mm -hmm. But Armstrong, what makes him the first pop star is he's able to puncture the fourth wall and between the artist and the audience. He's able to break through and touch them with just the music. And people began to crave that feeling. And as he brought that sound around the world, they wanted to be in front of that feeling. And so when you talk mm -hmm. about like all these people buying all these tickets in the first three hours, <laughs> it's incredible. Mm -hmm. Like that's how satiating the experience can be, even for an elderly artist. You know, I keep bringing that up. Because it's important to note, he's not 22. 
And when we think about pop artists now, they're in their the youth is the crave, you know, but he is deep into his his years and there's still a clamor for him. We take a historical event as a departure point, but it is an art exhibition with a multidisciplinary approach. And aside from Peter Brotzmann and Pina Bausch, and we have also photography by Evelyn Richter, Gordon Parks, mm-hmm. um, Glenn Ligon's neon installation untitled Blues Bruce. We have also one of Armstrong's original trumpets and <laughs> his <right>. own collages <laughs> that he did. And yeah. Rudolf Rehfeld's typewritings, Someday We Shall Overcome, or Blue Blues, mm-hmm. uh, from the 1970s. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful band, <laughs> you know. I often would visit exhibitions and kind of make a mythology around the relationships the artists have to one another, not necessarily to me, but just to one another. And uh, and thinking about the ways that Pina Bausch centered a pivotal part of her choreography around Louis Armstrong's West End Blues, which is a pivotal part of music history, then they found each other, right? And that's essential. It's kind of like a dream band. Mm, <laughs> it is. You know? Um, and so we're also constructing a kind of way for the work to have a kind of counterpoint in the same way Armstrong's music does as well. So the way that Gordon Parks uh, spent time with Armstrong photographing him and also creating his own scenes based on, you know, things he's read, this is part of this mythology too. And people like Rosemary Traco, I think the first exhibition I saw of hers in New York was at the New Museum. Somehow she found counterpoint with other works that were not her own. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, was like so r- rare to see an artist figure that out. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was moved by it, you know, her ability to find the other bandmates, you know. Yes, Rosemary Traco is in the exhibition with... Um Record player, mm. vinyl record player, but it's made out of a cooking. How do you call it? A cooking plate? Yeah, a heat, heat, heating plate. Yeah. Heating plate. Yeah, hot plate. <laughs> a hot plate. <laughs> and a and a and a needle to do crochet. Mm. Yeah, that's so <laughs> interesting. A mute by Terry Atkins and mouthpieces by Lorna Simpson. I mean, this is all uh, very connected to the situation in which Armstrong was during the tour and in, in between press conference and concert. Mm-hmm. Like, I always think he was between the mouthpiece, you know, making mm-hmm. the sound and the mute, just mm-hmm. manipulating it. And then we have a lot of works where you have the feeling there is potential sound mm-hmm. crossing walls or right. you talk about perforating the walls. Yeah, perforating the, the wall, yeah. And it's not the one wall. There are a lot of walls in this world. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I don't know why anyone else hasn't done it already. <laughs> well, the show about Louis Armstrong in the GDR. <laughs> <laughs> well, the parlor, that's all you. <laughs> and you have a beautiful space in Potsdam that can ask these kinds of questions. I think, you know, oftentimes, like here as a musician, when you get a song, you can decide to play it many ways. And it's up for you to decide which way you're going to attack the piece. And especially when it comes to the solo. And the solo is like, oh, I can now depart even further. 
And given your position at the museum, and given my position at the museum in New York, at the Louis Armstrong House Museum and Center, that we find a way to make a new song by knowing each other all these years and to ask something that maybe even the center in Corona, Queens cannot ask. But then how do you play that song? That means we have to make it. And the only way is to actually like, no, let's actually do it. And so when you first proposed it, I thought, she's out of her mind. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought, that's so brilliant because I would have never imagined that, right? That stages and spaces and gallery spaces have to be filled and they have to come with something that that generates friction in the air as much as it does on the wall, you know? And Armstrong and his relationship to 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 Germany is one to bring up. And that that we have an opportunity to do this is a is a real it's a real flashpoint for me. And over the past three years been diving into Armstrong glad that there's another way to show his vast um, approach to life and to be able to discuss it. You know, like when we were talking about Peter Bausch earlier, you know, the choreography is around four movements to represent the four seasons from spring, summer, fall, and winter. And it's called the Nelkin line. And you so aptly noted that when Lucille was arriving that she's given a bunch of Nelkin. Of Nelkin, of carnation <laughs> flowers, yes. And that's also like this passage, this choreography. You know, because also Lucille Armstrong is a dancer by trade. She's known as one of the great dancers in New York City, and that's how Lewis meets her. But she was also Lewis's partner. Um, and to a big degree, after Lewis Armstrong dies, it's Lucille who saves the collection. It's Lucille who dedicates the house to become a museum. She sees all of this, that 50 years later, we're finally able with resources to act upon and create an exhibition like this, not only here in Potsdam, but also in New York City and Queens. And it's just an important moment for for us that I'm totally thrilled by. So finding these cross currents is... This is quite unique to have a home in that condition preserved Mm. of an African-American musician. I don't know if it's even the only case. Yeah, it's a feeling when you walk in the house. It, uh, I mean, it's the house he dies in. He dies in his sleep. Um, Jewel Brown, in her interview, she says, you know, like he wanted to go out on stage. That's how he wanted to pass away. <laughs> I don't even think she meant it when she said it. He died in the best way people dream of, in his sleep. <laughs> so he died while dreaming. I mean, come on, Lewis. <laughs> what a solo. <laughs> Here, let's have a conversation about Lewis and Louis. <laughs> now, I say Lewis because um, I know the prominence of syllables um, in black language and where we decide to drop a syllable at the end of a word and when we decide to enunciate every part of someone's name because of the respect we have for it, right? So. And also the people that I learned how to say his name from, like Wenton Marsalis. Like, I don't say Wenton. I say Wenton Marsalis. I keep it very, um, I keep it formal because of how much respect I have for what they represent in the music. So Louis Armstrong, (laughs) to me, Louis is always a way. Sometimes when I'm walking around the streets in New York and I'm wearing my Louis Armstrong shirt, somebody will walk by and say, 
Louie. <laughs> and I think, oh, that's right. That's right. People refer to him as Louie. And I, I keep forgetting. So anytime I hear Louie, I'm also reminded that maybe that's part of his beauty is that he's allowed to kind of fit in the mouths of many people, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds mm-hmm. of different ways. The people who call him Pops, the people who call him Satchmo, people who call him Louis or Louie, you know. So he feels like he's part of you in the way you speak his name. Um, we're also showing a typewriting by Ruth von Freefeld uh, from the 70s with um, this very famous sentence uh, coming from a, from a gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Someday we shall overcome. Mm-hmm. And she repeats that over the piece of paper many, many times like a mantra. But I ask myself, when will someday come? Right. right. Um, when will it come someday? I often think also about the way Ruth types as its own um, sound recording. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's almost worth a performance. <laughs> oh, she types like a pianist. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, <laughs> I can hear like when the, when you press the space button. Now, what MLK, Martin Luther King, says uh, in his dedication to the Berlin Jazz Festival around the, one year earlier, 1964. Yeah, was, the very first one, 1964, very first issue of this festival that still lives today. Yeah. Yeah. The last part of the quote for this text that he writes, he says, much of the power of our freedom movement in the United States has come from this music. It has strengthened us with its sweet rhythms when courage began to fail. It has calmed us with its rich harmonies when spirits were down. And now jazz is exported to the world. For in the particular struggle of the Negro in America, there is something akin to the universal struggle of modern man. Everybody has the blues. <laughs> Glenn Ligon, too. <laughs> Everybody longs for meaning. Everybody needs to love and be loved. Everybody needs to clap hands and be happy. Everybody longs for faith. And in music, especially this broad category called jazz, there's a stepping stone towards all of these. Powerful. Those words are as powerful as music. <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, reading uh, MLK text is also a sound piece because he was an incredible orator. You know, the way he'd summon an audience, it wasn't simply because of the words, it was in the delivery too. It's in his tone, it's in his pause. It's in the rise of his voice to a crescendo. He's a musician, and he's married to a musician, Coretta Scott King. She's a vocalist, a classical vocalist. They met in Boston. She went to New England Conservatory, and he was at Boston University. And so they met there. So he's married to someone who understands the power of the music to manipulate a room. And so he, that he's given this space not long before he's assassinated, to say and give an honor to the music that has found another home here in Berlin and in Germany is, is really powerful. Yes. I personally love the sentence, everybody has the blues. The questions that we are dealing with in the exhibition, they are all contemporary questions about political statements, activism, which way we all participate in society, in which different ways there are to raise also awareness of the situations we're in. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of things had not changed a bit. Mm. And the work by Ruth Favreyfeld, Someday We Shall Overcome, mm. is when we presented it in our show, I had the feeling, okay, this was made in the 70s, but we haven't moved mm. a bit. Mm. Someday? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Why not today? And we are also showing at the Sminsk um, an original trumpet of Louis Armstrong that we kindly could loan from Corona Queens from the Louis Armstrong Museum. And we're showing it together with a work in our collection by Andy Warhol, Mona Lisa, four times. I mean, you said before Armstrong and the Mona Lisa. It's just like the same. <laughs> <laughs> but the what's connection. The, the yeah, connection, what's that quote that you have? So uh, well, the, the, the quote is uh, Armstrong famously said something like, a lot of cats copy the Mona Lisa, but people s- uh, still queue on a line to see the original. So good. <laughs> so good. It's a question of original and copy, maybe about also about live music and recording as a mm. medium that reproduces the music. And so we have the, our listening room in the same space um, with records. I've Seen the Wall, Louis Armstrong on tour in the GDR in 1965, is on until February 4th, 2024. If you're in Potsdam or Berlin, come see the exhibition. We'd like to thank the Louis Armstrong House Museum in Corona, Queens, New York. And we'd also like to thank the Louis Armstrong Educational Foundation. How would it end? Ain't got a friend. My only sin is in my skin. What did I do to be so black and blue?